Yeah, we are. Um, time has got away from us a bit this morning, hasn't it? But we are coming to the Lord's Word. This is where we need to be attentive. Uh, we need to be humble. Let's pray that the Lord would help us be those things now. The Lord Jesus proclaimed good news, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that by his Spirit, your Son would proclaim good news to us this morning. May our hearts be attentive to your very word. We come before our King and our Creator and our Saviour. We pray that we would hear words of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Think about what we're going to hear and listen to this morning. I don't know whether you ever think this, you come on a Sunday, whether you ever ask, you know, what, what would it be useful to hear this morning? What would I like to hear this morning at church? We live in a complex world, moral complexity, hard issues to think through, maybe, maybe something to help us navigate this world. That, that's what you want to hear. We perhaps are fed up with making the same bad choices, ending up in the same bad places. Maybe you want to hear something that's, that's going to give you a strategy to cope, to become a better human being. Or perhaps you're just thinking, I can't face another day at work or another day at home. Something that will just give me a reason to go to work, to stay at home. Yet what do you often hear when you come to church on a Sunday morning Well, you hear the gospel, don't you? You hear about Jesus dying and rising again for the forgiveness of our sins. And sometimes we wonder, do we we need more? And of course there is more than simply that. But what we are going to see this morning is the priority of the preaching of the gospel. There is nothing we need more than to hear the gospel. As Tim so helpfully reminded us, Jesus has just wrestled with the devil in the wilderness And he comes out victorious. He demonstrated to Satan and to us that all the riches and comfort of the world are worth nothing compared to obedience to his father. Now fresh from that victory, what is it that Jesus does? Or or, or to put it another way, what was it that Satan was so determined to stop Jesus doing? What will Jesus do that, that will mean the utter defeat for Satan And the fulfillment of all God's plans and purposes. He preaches the gospel. So first point, hear the preaching of the gospel and don't reject it. Look at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. And the moment that people love Jesus... But as we're about to find out, people are fickle. They can love you one day and want you dead the next. Twitter may be a modern phenomenon, but the cancel culture that goes with it, that's that's always been around. So Jesus heads to the one place he might expect to get his greatest welcome from, and that's his hometown, Nazareth. And on the Sabbath, he does what he does. He preaches. He turns to some verses from the book of Isaiah 61 and he reads, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So Isaiah 61 is a promise that God's servant, God's king, the one anointed with God's spirit, will come and proclaim good news or the gospel. Jesus is talking about the gospel. And what does he say the gospel is? Carry on. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, the gospel is freedom and liberty and God's favor. So the poor, the prisoners, the oppressed, at some level, that is definitely talking about physical poverty, physical oppression, physical prisoners. But we also need to realize that in the context of Isaiah chapter 61, the poor, the prisoners, and the blind, it also has a spiritual meaning to it. They refer to people under God's judgment, to people blind to the truth, under the influence of sin and evil, people who have ignored their God. So so in Isaiah 61, there is a sense in which God is the judge and he is the jailer. And so to be set free is first and foremost to be forgiven and reconciled to God. So the gospel in Isaiah 61 is a promise not just of physical freedom and liberty, that will come after spiritual freedom and liberty, forgiveness of sins, the gospel. So Jesus, back in his hometown, he reads these wonderful words, the promise of a saviour who will preach the gospel and who will proclaim liberty and freedom and then he sits down. And verse 20, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. You can feel the silence, can't you? Everyone hanging on Jesus' word. What is he going to say next? Verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled among you in your hearing. People talk about a kind of a a mic drop moment when you say something so brilliant, so funny, so astonishing that you don't need to say anything else. Just drop the mic and walk away. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That is a mic drop moment. One of the great prophecies of the Old Testament. One of the great promises about the coming of the divine saviour and king. And Jesus says this, Isaiah 61, this is me. And to start with, the people love it. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And to be fair, it was a short sermon. When I was starting out as a preacher, I was preaching some stinkers going on for 40, 45 minutes. I'm not a 40, 45 minute kind of preacher. And it dawned on me one day that maybe I should preach shorter. So I preached these 20 minute sermons and the reaction was incredible. Love your sermons. They were the same bad sermons, just shorter. People appreciate a short sermon. Don't get your hopes up. But the good vibes, the good vibes about Jesus, they don't last long. Because by the end of the morning, they are taking Jesus up to a hill so that they can throw him off and kill him. They hear Jesus preach the gospel and they reject him. Why? I think two things. First, they think we are too good for the gospel. 
when they hear Jesus, initially they're impressed. This guy speaks well, that's their initial impression. But I don't think that should have been their first reaction. Think about what Jesus has just said to them. I am the servant who has come to preach good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoner. So who must his hearers be? What is Jesus saying about the identity of those who are listening to him? You are the spiritually poor. You are the prisoner. You are the spiritually blind. You are the spiritually oppressed. Rejecting God, cut off therefore from him. You see, it never dawned on them that these words were addressed to them. They never stopped to think we are the ones who need God's grace and his favor. That we are the ones imprisoned by God's judgment with hearts hardened to him and sympathetic to evil and sin. No, they they never make the connection between what Jesus is preaching to them is what Jesus is preaching about them. They never make the connection because deep down they think we are too good for the gospel. This isn't about us. So look, whenever you hear Jesus preach, and we hear him every time we gather, every time we open the scriptures, it is the voice of Christ by his spirit that we hear, always assume first that he's talking about you. When Jesus preaches against a lustful heart, assume he's talking about you. When he preaches against pride and anger and deceit and faithlessness, when he urges us to be kind and compassionate and generous, assume he is talking to you. The people listening thought, we are too good for this. He's not talking about us. But they also think our enemies are too bad for the gospel. After their initial positive reaction, doubt begins to creep in. The crowd look at Jesus in verse 22 and they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Remember him running around in the front garden? Remember him falling over and grazing his knees? And now he's standing up in front of us claiming to be the king, the savior of the world. And Jesus can read what they're thinking. They want Jesus to prove that he really is this saviour. They want Jesus to perform miracles for them. Verse 23, this is Jesus' words, but he's putting words into their mouth. He's saying what they're thinking. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Do miracles for us, Jesus. Jesus refuses because he knows that they have rejected him in their hearts. He's not going to perform for them. And more importantly, you don't get to negotiate with Jesus. We will believe you, Jesus, on our terms. You do for us what we want and then we'll believe you. No, Jesus is the son of God. He is not just another celebrity desperate for popularity and more likes and more followers. He is the son of God. We take him on his terms or not at all. 
So Jesus refuses to do any miracles and instead he warns those listening, if you carry on rejecting me and the gospel, it will go elsewhere. He talks about Elijah and Elisha, two prophets in the Old Testament who were also rejected by God's people. He says, verse 25, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. You see, Jesus is saying, if you don't want the Lord's salvation, if you don't want the freeing power of the gospel, then others will. And those others will be your enemies. And look at their response, verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Do you see why they are so angry? Because they think their enemies are too bad for the gospel. How dare Jesus say that God will offer salvation to our enemies? How dare Jesus suggest that salvation will be offered, let's say, to their Roman occupiers, the ones oppressing them? How dare Jesus say that they are the ones who will receive God's salvation? In communist Russia, there was a pastor called Richard Wurmbrandt. His wife was from a Jewish family. And during World War II, her family were brutally killed in a concentration camp. Now, sometime after the war, Wurmbrandt met one of the guards responsible for those killings. His name was uh, called Barilla, and he had become a Christian. Barilla was in need, and Wurmbrandt invited him back to his house where his wife, Sabina, was asleep. Listen to what happened next. I went into the other room and found my wife still sleeping calmly. I woke her gently and said, there is a man here whom you must meet. We believe he is the one who murdered your family. Now, how would you react? The man who killed your family is downstairs. Is someone like that too bad for the gospel? You see, we we need to be careful here. Because more so than I remember growing up, our culture encourages us to vilify those who disagree with us. Social media encourages us to, to hate those who take another view. And listening to some Christians, usually on social media, more so than ever, we are in danger of thinking some people are too bad for the gospel. Whatever side of the the political spectrum you fall on, whatever generation you are, we are encouraged to hate those who take a different view from us. We must be so careful. Let me finish off the sentence. The man who killed your family is downstairs. Do you know what Wurmbrandt said next? He has repented and he is now our brother. As the story goes on, Sabina gets up 
makes Barilla a meal and they sit down as brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, liberty for the oppressed, the year of the Lord's favour to all who will receive it. There is no one too good for the gospel and there is no one too bad for the gospel. Hear the gospel and do not reject it. In verse 30, Jesus is able, perhaps miraculously, to walk through the mob so that he can't kill him. One day he will let a mob take him to another hill and die on a cross, but not this day because he has more to teach us. Secondly, see the power of the gospel and do not hinder it. So in verse 31, Jesus is in a new town, Capernaum, and he does what he did in Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue and he preaches probably the same sermon again, saying, I am the divine servant, come to preach good news. But the reaction is different. Verse 31, on the Sabbath he taught the people, they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In Capernaum, the people don't think they're too good for the gospel. Instead, they sense something of the authority of Jesus, his majesty. And so Jesus does for them what he refused to do for those in Nazareth. He casts out demons and he heals the sick. Why? So that he can show them the power, his power, the power of the gospel. I mean, just look at how he pushes back evil and sickness. He just uses his words. In verse 35, he rebukes a demon and says, come out of him. That's all it takes. In verse 39, again, he rebukes the fever harming Simon's mother-in-law. We see the same phrase again in verse 41. He rebukes the demons and they flee. You see the power and the authority of Jesus' word. Just speaking, and evil and sickness flee before him. There's a beautiful description in the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the magician's nephew. The two heroes of the story enter a world at the moment of its creation. And Aslan, the godlike figure, is walking back and forth. And as he walks, he sings. And as he sings, stars start forming in the skies. Trees start shooting up from the ground. The song continues, the words change, and all kinds of animals start forming in front of their eyes. It's majestic, it is beautiful, but even more, it is powerful. To speak things into existence, to just use your words, is incredible power. Jesus is able to bring freedom to the prisoner. He is able to bring sight to the blind, liberty to the the oppressed, because... He is powerful, and his words are powerful. And I want us to see just two things about this power. It is marked by compassion. Verse 40. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Or or more literally, just capturing something of the the, the extent of his healing. All those who had any who were sick with various kinds of sickness brought them to Jesus and he healed them. Jesus welcomed anyone. 
He dealt with any kind of sickness in front of him. And notice when he does this mass healing at sunset on the Sabbath, verse 40. He'd been preaching all day in the synagogue. He'd been dealing with demons, healing Simon's mother-in-law. It is the end of the day for him. I saw a post on Instagram the other day. It was a picture of a panda lying on its back, fast asleep, with its tongue kind of hanging out. And the caption above it said, this is how a pastor feels at the end of a, of a Sunday. <laughs> Could have been anything, couldn't it? How parents feel all the time with a child under, under the age of one. You see, as, as the sun set after a full day of preaching and teaching and meeting people's needs, Jesus is exhausted. But he does not abandon those who desperately want his help. With compassion, he healed all who came to him. Brothers and sisters, it is still the same Jesus today. Come to him at any time of any day with whatever your care, your concern, your worry, your confession might be, and he will always hear you. A power marked with compassion. But this power, this is a rubbish title for it, but this power has precision as well. It doesn't really capture what I mean, but you, you, you'll see. It has compassion, but it has pr- pr- precision. Go back to the healing of the demon-possessed man in, in the synagogue in verse 33. We read in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Jesus believed in demons, so should we. Another time, when we've got a bit more time, I would love to share and teach a little bit more on how we should understand the, 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 the evil spiritual forces at work around us. But for now, look at what the demon says to Jesus. Verse 34. Go away. What do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? It's odd because the demon is talking about us. But there is only one demon. So who is the us? Well, the demon assumes that he and the man he possesses have become one. Listen to what he says next. Have you come to destroy us? That the demon thinks he and the possessed man are inextricably linked. Destroy the demon and you destroy the man. You can't kill the demon without killing the man. It's the kind of thing a hostage taker thinks. You, you rob a bank, you want to escape, you take a hostage, you keep them by your side. The police can't shoot you, they can't harm you without harming the hostage. Kill one and you kill the other. And there is a horrible thought sometimes in our minds, isn't there? That, that our sin can feel so much part of who we are, that our destructive thoughts and patterns of behavior can feel so much part of us that we cannot imagine existing without them. We fear that if our sin was removed and destroyed, then maybe there would be nothing left of us. Destroy the demon, destroy the man. Have you come to destroy us, Jesus? But look how Jesus saves. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without 
injuring him. Jesus can destroy the enslaver and set the slave free. He can remove the evil and keep the man alive. He can remove the sin in our lives without destroying us and crush the evil in our hearts without crushing us. This is why I say his power has precision. He is like an expert surgeon. Jesus can cut out the cancer without killing the patient. And that means something wonderful, something that some of us, probably all of us need to hear. You are not your sin. You are not the dark thoughts that you battle with day in and day out. You are not the sinful desires of your heart. Jesus will remove the sin in our lives without destroying us. He will set us free, finally and fully, from Satan and sin. And what is true of sin in our lives is true of other pathologies that that we live with. Things that, that we live with because we are in a fallen and a broken world. Things that are dark and painful and feel so much part of us that we cannot imagine existing without them. Addictions, chronic illness, ongoing depression, shame and trauma because of the past. We've lived with them for so long that we wonder, is this just who I am? But one day, Jesus will crush them all without crushing you. You are not those things. Be quiet, Jesus said. Come out of him. And the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring the man. The power of Jesus is seen in this precision. He can cut out the cancer without killing the patient. So see the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus. He can set us free and bring liberty and restore us to life. See the power of the gospel. So don't hinder it. As we close, listen to verse 42. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. People want Jesus to stay, of course they do. They want to stop him leaving, but look what Jesus says, verse 43. I must proclaim the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Because that is why I was sent. The priority for Jesus is to preach the gospel so that others might experience the power of the gospel and be set free from our spiritual imprisonment and brought back to God. Brothers and sisters, let us never hinder the preaching and the the power of the gospel. For our sake, we need to keep hearing the gospel. Yes, it's more than Jesus died and rose again, but it's not less than that. We need to keep hearing the words of Christ. They are the words of life. The words of salvation. And so as we come Sunday by Sunday, may our attitude always be, first and foremost, give me the words of Christ. Don't give me strategies. 
Don't give me five-point self-improvement plans. Don't give me feel-good. Don't give me political analysis. Give me the words of Christ. Of course, there's a place for some of those other things, but first and foremost. And for the world's sake, let us not hinder the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus wants all to experience the power of his gospel. Let us not keep it from people. Let us not make social issues the main thing we talk about. Let us not make self-improvement the main content of our message. Let us keep preaching the gospel for our sake and for the sake of the world. Hear the preaching of the gospel and do not reject it. You are not too good for it and you are not too bad for it. And see the power of the gospel and do not hinder it. I'm required, I'm going to pray. Spirit of the Lord is on me, says Jesus, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Heavenly Father, we need that good news as much as we ever did. And our friends, our family, those that we work with, those that we live alongside, they also need this good news. And we thank you that it is a gospel that comes with power. Please may your gospel continue to powerfully work in our own hearts. And we pray that it would powerfully work in the hearts of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.